If you have your Bibles, I invite you to reach for them and to turn to the book, the Psalms, in chapter 2, Psalms chapter 2. And as you do, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? If you don't have a Bible, you can certainly reach for one of the blue pew Bibles that are in front of you and turn to page 528. 528 in the blue pew Bibles. We're in Psalm chapter 2, reading the whole chapter, verses 1 through 12. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you that we can gather together to worship you and to hear you speak to us through your word. Let your word take root in our hearts. Let it challenge us and convict us where needed. Use Pastor Chris now as he speaks your word to us. In your name we pray. Amen. just want to begin this morning with a question that one of our guests even asked us that are coming next week, asked me, why the theme Refuge for the Nations? And as I thought about that and gave her my answer, it was that it's a biblical theme with a missional focus and a practical reminder. It's a biblical theme, as you see here in the Psalm 2, and we could go to many other passages to see this. But it's also something I want you to understand that we don't pick a theme and then force it into the text. If you look at this text, and as we listen today, we'll see that our theme flows out of the text inductively. But it's also a missional focus. All of our global partners, all of our global guests are focused on proclaiming Jesus Christ as the refuge for the nations. Now, some even have refuge in their ministry name. Others are directly focused on refugees. But regardless of whether they're planting churches in the Dominican Republic or reaching AIDS orphans in South Africa, all of them are focused on being a refuge for their specific people group and their specific nation. But what I want you to see today is that it's a practical reminder For all of us, every one of us here needs a refuge, and that refuge is Jesus Christ. You see, we're not exporting something 
to others that we ourselves don't need here at home. In fact, the reason why some people are, have little interest in missions is because Christ is not their daily refuge of their heart on a regular basis. And if we don't find refuge in Christ, why would we be excited about exporting Him to others? You see, we all start our lives out as spiritual refugees, don't we? Cast out from the presence of the Lord by in His wrath. We have all been or out, born outsiders as sinners, as Gentiles, which most of us here are today. We are strangers and foreigners to God's covenant promises, and His blessings are not our birthright. But in Christ, we have found a gospel refuge. We who were far off have been brought near. We who were orphans have been adopted into God's family. We who were outsiders are now citizens of God's kingdom. We who were men and women at risk spiritually have been rescued. We who were naked have been clothed with Christ's righteousness. We who were hungry and thirsty have been brought to the bread of life to drink of the living waters. Why the theme, Refuge for the Nations? It's, this, it's really simple. We are all rebels at heart. We are all rebels at heart in need of a refuge from the coming wrath of God and His chosen King. And that's the big idea of Psalm 2. Rebels need a refuge from the coming wrath of the sovereign God and His chosen Messianic King. Now you can see the background of Psalm 2 there in your notes that are in your bulletin and Hopefully you're following along. But I want you to realize this. When you look at verse 1, notice what it says in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? We have raging rebels in verse 1, but look at the end of verse 12. At the end of verse 12, it says, Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. And in between those verses, we have our theme for the coming week, and we have this message that the nations desperately need to hear. And it's a message that every one of us here sitting this morning needs to hear as well. Today, I want you to see two things out of this passage. I want you to see the necessity of the refuge, and I want you to see the opportunity for a refuge. Let's begin and look at the necessity of a refuge. There's three reasons why the nations and all rebels need a refuge. And the first reason is this. The earthly nations are in rebellion. The earthly nations are in rebellion. Verses 1 through 3 answer the question, why are the nations raging? Look again. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And here's what they are shouting, what they are saying. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. It's very clear in these verses. There's a global rebellion against the sovereign God and his righteous rule over creation. It's from the bottom up, the peoples, and it's from the top down, the leaders and their kings. 
The nations rage in a rebellion against God's rule. And what they are raging against are two things, as you can see in verse 2. They are raging against God's rule over creation from heaven. They're raging against the Lord up in heaven. In fact, in Acts chapter 4, when the early church prayed this psalm back to God, in Acts 4, verse 24, here's what they said. And when they heard of the very first act of persecution against the church, they lifted up their voices together to God, and here's what they prayed. Sovereign Lord, Creator, God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and then they quote Psalm 1 and 2. Why do the nations rage? In other words, the nations are raging against the Creator God who rules from heaven over everyone and everything He created. But they're also raging against God's rule over salvation on the earth. Notice, they also rage, in verse 2, against the anointed. Who is the anointed? God's chosen Redeemer, who will restore God's plan for creation, for His presence, to rule with His people over His planet. They are raging against God's Redeemer and His desire to restore God's rule. But what does this rebellion look like? What does it look like? Well, the best way to summarize it is this. It is a full-blown declaration of war. It is a full-blown declaration of war on God's plan for His creation and His promise of redemption. Notice it says in verse 2 in the ESV, they set themselves. You could translate, they stand. They stand as rebels in opposition. And that word stand or set is a military term. You think of a martial arts guy that's ready to, to, to fight. You know, he's, I don't know how they stand, but something like this. And, uh, and if you're boxing, you're, you're ready. Okay, I'm ready to fight. If, if you're in the military, you got your gun and you are ready to shoot it. These guys have set themselves in opposition. And they're united in it. We think today of the United Nations who work for peace. Here we have the United Nations who are at war with their creator. And they're scheming in verse 2. They're plotting, scheming, planning. How can we overcome the Lord and his anointed one? And then they have a rebel shout in verse 3. If you're a Civil War buff, you know the Confederate armies had a rebel cry that was uh, as much for them to have courage as it was to instill fear. And, and in fact, sometimes when the army would be without bullets, their generals would say, just yell them over to the other side. And, and that's kind of what the nations are doing. They have this rebel shout. And their, their shout is, we want to throw off the bonds and crush the limitations that the Creator has put on us. You see, in our sin and unbelief, we're the same way. We mistake God and His Son for bondage makers instead of the bondage breakers that they are. 
The rebel nations are standing defiantly. They're striving aggressively. They're scheming boldly. And they're shouting arrogantly against God and his king. And what are they in rebellion on? They don't want God's presence ruling through among God's people in God's place through his chosen person, the anointed one. But when did this rebellion begin? When did this begin? Well, that answer is fairly simple in the Bible as well. It began with the angelic rebellion in heaven and the human rebellion on earth in the Garden of Eden. Please understand, the nations rage because first, Lucifer, that created angelic being in heaven, raged against the rule of God. And he, and he seduced a third of the angelic beings to join his revolt. And on that day, he became the devil, the accuser of God's people. And he became Satanah, Satan, the adversary of God and his people. Isaiah 12, 14, or Isaiah 14, 12 tells us a little bit, and it's just a little bit of how it happened. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground. You who laid the nations low. You see, in him falling, his desire was to cause rebellion on earth. You said in your heart, and it always starts in the heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And so he was judged as a rebel, and his intent was to bring his revolt, his revolution to earth. And so the revolution, the rebellion on earth began in the garden with our first parents as they listened to Satan through the serpent and they rebelled against God, listening to the lie of the serpent rather than the sure word of God. And through Adam and Eve and their offspring, it spread to the nations. And we see that in Genesis 11, in the Tower of Babel, as the people of the earth rebelled and the nations are raging and they're gathering together as one people with one language. And they say, we will build a city and we will build a tower up to heaven. We will work our way up and we will declare war on God and we will make a name for ourselves for we will not be spread out on the earth. We don't want to follow the Creator's plan. And so God came down and he confused their languages. He scattered them into the 70 nations of Genesis 10. And the nations have been in rebellion ever since. And so the question becomes, when will that rebellion end? And it will only end with the coming of God's anointed one. In fact, in Revelation 19, 19, we see the raging nations. And here is what John sees foretells of the future. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against Christ who was sitting on the horse and against his army. So that's where the rebellion began and that's when the rebellion is going to end. But what are some of the earthly outcomes of the nations raging? What are some 
of the earthly outcomes of this rebellion? Well, first of all, wars and rumors of war. Wars and rumors of war. As the nations rage against God, they rage against one another. The history of mankind is a history of war. And it began with Cain warring on his brother and murdering his brother Abel, and we have been slaughtering one another ever since. In fact, one of the earliest historical records of mankind, get this, one of the earliest recorded records, it's from Samaria region, about 3,000 years B.C., before Christ, and it's a relief of soldiers marching, shields, helmets, and battling. I mean, that's the earliest record that we have, uh, that we have found. Also, in World War One, that was supposed to be the great war to end all wars. And 20 million people lost their lives. The Liberty Memorial is a memorial to that. But soon there was World War Two, and 60 million people lost their lives. And since then, there's been war between Russia and Afghanistan, China and Vietnam, Vietnam and Cambodia, Iran and Iraq, Iraq and Kuwait, regional conflicts in Bosnia, North Ireland, South Africa, Lebanon, Israel, India, Panama, Peru, Colombia, and most recently, and most tragically, in Syria. And the U.S. has been involved in most of them as well. Why? Because we, too, are a nation in rebellion and raging against God's rule. And we don't often, sometimes we misunderstand that, but that's true. Now, spiritual warfare in heaven is being played out in the physical wars on this earth. If you don't believe me, look at Daniel. You'll see that in the book of Daniel. And this doesn't mean that all war is to be avoided. There is, in the Christian tradition, a just war to defend oneself and others from hostile aggression. Nevertheless, a biblical worldview looks beyond the national interests to the spiritual warfare that's being played out and takes comfort in knowing we are on the winning side. Amen? And it's not our side. And it's not our nation's side. It is his side and his anointed. Now, unfortunately, there is collateral damage And another outcome of the nation's raging is we have refugees on the run. Every five seconds, a person is displaced on this planet. Boom, displacement. Boom, boom, boom. Every five seconds, displacement. I want you to see in a video here, One of the greatest refugee crises going on right now is due to the war and the nations raging in Syria. So take a look at this video. The European refugee crisis in Syria explained in a nutshell. It'll be three minutes. Well, that's a big, quick overview. But that isn't something that's just abstract. Some of our guests who are coming have been directly affected and the people they're ministering to are directly results of the nations raging. And I just want to make 
three observations from what we've just seen, refugees on the run. First of all, God has a sovereign purpose even in suffering and war. He is bringing many unreached peoples into reached countries with a Christian witness. That's why the McAllisters are there in Berlin. God, secondly, is bringing prepared hearts to our own communities. He prepares hearts through suffering caused by the devil and the raging nations. Thirdly, as Christians, we need to focus more on his redemptive purpose amidst the raging nations and stop seeing everything through political glasses, whether your glasses are shaded red or blue. It doesn't matter. This isn't ultimately a political issue, although the gospel impacts politics, but we as God's people need to see the spiritual warfare and the refuge opportunities for preaching the gospel. Now, there's one more outcome that I'll only mention, and it's this. The raging of the nations results in God's people being persecuted. Believers are martyred by the nations, churches are restricted, and evangelism is outlawed. So the first reason the nations need a refuge is this. They are in rebellion against the sovereign creator and his chosen redeemer. But verses 4 through 6 reveal the second reason why these raging rebels need a refuge. And it's this. Their rebellion is futile. It will fail. And it will fall under the wrath of God. And so the second reason they need a refuge is the rebel nations are under God's wrath. And we see this in verses 4 through 6. Notice it says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. And this is what will scare them. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, here's what I want you to see from just these three verses. Two reminders about God's heavenly heavenly rule during earthly rebellion. And the first is this. God's rule is sovereign and secure in heaven over the earth. The nations may rage. Wars and rumors of wars will increase. Refugees are at risk and God's people are persecuted. But rest assured, God's rule is sovereign in heaven over all the earth. If I was a psalmist, I would have put Selah there. Pause and reflect. God's rule can't be overthrown. The outcome of the global rebellion that I read for you in Revelation 19 against the sovereign God, the outcome of that rebellion is not in doubt. Why? Because God sits on the throne. Look look at who he is. The one who sits is called the Lord. And in verse 4, if you're alert to your Bible, you'll see that Lord is in small caps. This isn't the redemptive name of Yahweh, I am, who has redemption purposes. This is the Lord who is the bold, one and only creator, and we could even say dictator of the earth. He owns it. 
He created it. He's in control of it. He is the only one who is large and in charge of all the universe. And he sits there with scorn at their rebellious acts. He doesn't even get up from his throne. God isn't up there pacing, wondering, what are we going to do? They're out of control down there. What are we going to do? He's not even standing up. He's sitting. But he's not sitting in a lackadaisical way. He's sitting because kings sit on their throne to rule and to speak their will. Now, when it says, he who sits in the heaven laughs and the Lord scoffs at them, this doesn't mean that God gets a kick out of man's rebellion or its devastating results. He's not laughing at refugees. He's not laughing at people who have never heard the name of his son who are going into a Christless eternity. Ezekiel 33, 11 assures us, As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Instead, his laughing means the futility and the foolishness of anyone on this earth thinking that they're going to overthrow him off his throne in heaven. Napoleon Bonaparte sought to rule the world. He was one of those raging kings and emperors. And when intoxicated with success at the height of his power, he is reported to have said, I make circumstances. Did you realize how proud and bold? I, I, circumstances don't affect me. I make circumstances. And you know what God was doing in heaven? He was laughing. And he was saying, oh, really? And God let him go on for a while. Then he spoke to him in his anger and terrified him in his fury. And Napoleon Bonaparte came to nothing. It's like a dad, an adult. You ever seen a kid get mad at an adult? And they just lose their head and they get raging and they charge at the adult and their hands are failing and their mouth, they're shouting and I'm going to get you. And the, all the adult has to do is stick his hand out, put it on their head and they're just like, <laughs> and the adult's just laughing and saying, for your own good, you better stop. I'm telling you, for your own good, you better stop. And that's what God's saying. That's what God's doing. See, our God is not some distant, passive God who sits and does nothing. He is large and in charge, but he's also close to us and cares. So he sits in order to speak his will and to carry out his word and his will on earth. And here is the second reminder. God's rule is succeeding in stages according to his spoken word. God's rule is succeeding on this earth, it may not seem like it most days. You may not understand that. You may question that. You may doubt that. And that's okay. God can handle our doubts and our questions. But the reality is this. His rule is succeeding in stages according to his spoken word. One day soon, the sovereign God is going to speak to all the rebels in his wrath and he will literally scare them to death. And what will he say? As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Set there means to install as king. 
In other words, in verse 2, he's anointed. And in verse 6, he is appointed and set on his throne. God's presence will rule with his king over his city, Jerusalem, one day and fill this world with his glory and put down the rebellion of the nations. Now, what do we need to remember as the nations rage all over the earth? It's simply this. God's rule is succeeding in these stages. But what do these stages look like? And I just have to hit this briefly, but I want you to see this play out. From Psalm 2 to the end of history, it will play out historically in the past God's rule was established over Israel through the kings that you see here in the Old Testament. Historically in the past over Israel. Spiritually in the present, right now in the church age, spiritually in the present, God's rule is exercised over the church as Jesus the anointed sits at the right hand of the Father and rules and calls out his people by the gospel and gathers them in kingdom outposts. That's basically what we're doing. We're subjects of the king. And we're sharing the good news. The king has come and he is seated in the heavens and he is calling you out, calling you out of the nations, calling you out of your rebellion and calling you to submission to his son and gathering in kingdom outposts as kingdom citizens. That's the local church. Three, physically in the future, God's rule will reign on in the kingdom on this earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus himself will move from the right hand of the Father to literally his feet will land on the Mount of Olives. He will march into Jerusalem. He will conquer the raging nations at the battle of Armageddon. And he will establish his kingdom on earth for a thousand years. Fourth, God's rule will be fulfilled completely over the new creation. Once the Son, the Anointed One, has subjected all nations, all authorities, all powers in heaven and on earth under His rule, including the devil and death, then He will take the kingdom that is securely His and submit Himself and the kingdom up to the Father so that God is all in all in the new creation. Isn't that amazing? 1 Corinthians 15. Check it out. Now, what do we say as God's people to this? We say what the scriptures say in Isaiah 66, 1. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth, that's where I rest my feet. It's my footstool. We say Psalms 29, 10. The Lord sat as a king at the flood. That was a day of judgment. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. We say with Psalms 113.5, Who is like the Lord our God? Who is enthroned on high? So as the nations rage, remember, God's rule is sovereign and is succeeding in stages, and the outcome is not in doubt. The third reason why there's a necessity for a refuge for the nations is this, the rebels will be broken by Christ's rule. The rebels will be broken by Christ's rule. And we see this in verses 7 
through 9. Now we move from the Father speaking from His throne in heaven. We have the Son speaking of the decree of His reign. I will tell of the decree. The Lord, the Father, said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Now, why can God say that? Because He's the Creator, and He owns it all. And what do you do with your firstborn son? You give him a double portion of your inheritance. And so he's saying, look, the Father God is saying to the the Son of God, you are my son, and I will give you the inheritance. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations. And what will he do with the inheritance when he receives it? Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron, and you will dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, when will Christ rule over the earth? When will Christ rule over the earth and break the nations? Well, here's the answer, I think, biblically, and it's this. We live in the now, not yet, between Christ's first coming to rule from heaven for salvation. Christ seated at the right hand right now, ruling from heaven for salvation, And we live between that which happened 2,000 years ago and that which could happen today, the second coming, to rule on earth for judgment. Now, you've got to understand, in the Old Testament, there was only one hope, and that hope was the anointed, they didn't know it was Jesus, the anointed would come and he would crush the enemy and save his people. But in reality... Those two things have been separated in the divine wisdom and mystery of God so that Christ came the first time to save and he suffered a rebel's death with rebels, for rebels, and he rose from the dead and is exalted to the right hand of the Father and he is ruling for salvation. What did the rebel on the cross say to him? Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said, today you will be with me in paradise. Why? Because I'm going up to reign. And I'm going to save rebels like you. Because I died as a rebel, falsely accused. In order to die in the place of rebels. With two rebels on either side of me. So I could be a refuge for the rebels. You see, the first coming spiritually broke the rebellion with the good news of salvation. The first coming spiritually broke the rebellion with the good news of salvation under his gracious rule. And if I had the time, I could take you to Acts 4, where the early church applied Psalm 2 to his crucifixion and their persecution. I could take you to Acts 13, where Paul, on his first missionary, applied uh, Psalm 2 to the resurrection of Jesus. You see, Psalm 2 is being uh, fulfilled today, and Christ has come. He's He's lived a sinless life. He wasn't a rebel. He was perfectly obedient. He died, not for his sins, 
but for the sins of the raging nations. And he was buried, and he rose again, and he has been exalted above all, and he's been given the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess, and every knee will bow and declare that Jesus is Lord. And what does he do with all this authority seated at the right hand? Well, Matthew 28 tells us. Because before he went up, he said this, I've been resurrected, but before I give, go up, I want to give you, my disciples, my subjects, I want to give you my marching orders. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of the nations. You see, God, God's anointed, Jesus of Nazareth, has been declared by the gospel, his crucifixion, his incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, exaltation, and ascension at the right hand of the Father. He has been declared God's anointed. And he is ruling through the word of the gospel for salvation of rebels. But there's no good news without the bad news. And the bad news is this. The second coming will totally break the rebellion with the bad news of judgment with a rod of iron. You know, this verse, this, this passage is interesting. We've sung it here at our church many times, and there's nothing wrong with singing it. But I always got a kick out of singing it because it said, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations, you know, and it's missions and it's gospel. But do you see in context? The Father saying, Ask of me. And I will give you these nations so that you can crush these rebels. Now, in God's good grace, we can ask of him for the nations. And we can go to them with the gospel. But the reality is there is a day when the son seated at the right hand is going to turn to the father. I guess he would turn this way. He would turn this way and he's going to say, I ask of you. And the father's going to say, the time is mine, but the time is now. Go, claim your inheritance and break them with a rod of iron. I wish we had the time to read Revelation 11, Revelation 19, where Psalm 2 is quoted, where he comes to this earth in all of his glory and white-hot holiness, and he comes to break the nations. You see, the, the king has come the first time for salvation, but he's coming a second time. So you're like, wow, is there any hope for these guys? Yes, that's the opportunity for a refuge. There is the opportunity for a, or for a refuge. And that's in the last three verses of this song. And the opportunity is this, a rebel's only hope is running to God's king for refuge. A rebel's only hope, now and in the future, is running to God's king for a refuge. In verses 10 through 12, we see the opportunity of refuge and where it's found. Look at verse 10. Now therefore, here's the application. Now therefore, O kings, O rulers of the earth, Oh, rebels right here in this room. 
Be warned. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. Why? For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed, blessed are all who take refuge in Him. You see, the irony is this. King Jesus is the refuge for all rebels. When it says, kiss the Son, it's a kiss of allegiance. When you would come into the presence of a king, you would bow and you would kiss their hand if it was offered. You would kiss their feet. Initially, that's where you'd start. Maybe they would raise you up and say, you can kiss my hand. Maybe they would initiate an embrace and even allow you to kiss their cheek. But this is a kiss of allegiance, but it's also a kiss of adoration and affection. And the refuge, a refuge is a hiding place. It's a strong tower. It's a place of security where the wrath of God cannot fall on you. And basically the message is this for all of us rebels here, and that's me That's you. That's all of us. Submit yourself. And in adoration, and in affection, and in allegiance, bow your rebel heart before his righteous rule. In other words, be wise. Heed the warning before it's too late. Repent and turn around. I like how... Uh, Eugene Peterson paraphrases these verses. Listen to this. Listen. So rebel kings, use your heads. Upstart judges, learn your lesson. Worship God in adoring embrace. Celebrate in trembling awe. Kiss Messiah. Your very lives are in danger, you know. His anger is about to explode. But if you make a run for God, you won't regret it. So I beg you this morning, make a run for God if you haven't. Be a, if you're a rebel, the message is simply take refuge in Christ before it's too late. Run. Run. Because your life depends on it. Run to Jesus. And maybe you said, you know, I've already repented. I've already turned from my rebellion, and by his grace, I've placed my faith, and I've, I've kissed the Son. I, I have submitted my heart to him. I, I, I adore him. I worship him. Then you're one of the repenters. And what do repenters do? Be a refuge in Christ for the nations before it's too late. Worship the Lord with reverence. Rejoice in the Lord. I hope you already have done that today. Be a bold witness. You know, it's interesting in Acts 4, when the early church prayed Psalm 2 back in the midst of persecution, the answer to their prayer was to be filled with the Spirit and be a bold witness for Christ in spite of opposition. So here's the bottom line, and here's where I want to end. There is no refuge from Christ, only refuge in Christ. See, we're all going to have to do business with it. Every Knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. You either freely confess him, Lord, now, and let him break your heart now, or you will be forced to confess it when he breaks your will in judgment. 
There's an urgency to taking refuge in Christ. And folks, I hope you come next week because there's an urgency in being a refuge for the nations. So here's what I end with. Those who persist in rebellion have no refuge from him and they will be broken in judgment. But those who persevere in repentance have a secure refuge in him and will be blessed with salvation. Do you realize Revelation 2 says, if you're a believer and you hold fast in spite of opposition and you remain faithful to the Lordship of Christ, that here's what Jesus promises, the risen Lord. To him... I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of a potter are broken to pieces. In other words, we're going to share in his rule in Psalm 2. Finally, our mission will succeed, and Christ's kingdom will come so that God's presence will rule with his people over his place for his glory and the joy of all the nations. The only question is, which side of that battle are we going to be on? Let's bow your heads. As you bow your heads, not only bow your head, but bow your heart. And when you really think about this psalm, there's an instruction for us, and it's this. Be wise and repent. Run to him this morning. Run to him run to him. You say, I don't know what to say or do. That's okay. Run to him. We're here to help you. Fill out your connection card. Turn to someone here. We are here to help you. Run to God and embrace his son as your savior and Lord. But this is an invitation to repenters as well. And there's more about being a repenter in your bulletin. But there's an invitation here to evaluate our allegiance, evaluate your adoration, evaluate your affection for King Jesus. And there is influence here for us to be a bold witness. There's refugees from Syria 10 minutes from here in the northeast. The case bolts will tell us about that. There's unreached people groups shopping in high V with you. There are prepared hearts among the nations in this community. Will we kiss the sun and share the good news? Father, in this response time, we pray, exalt your son by your spirit among us. Let's do business with the king as they play.